Welcome to Humans of Twitter, a podcast where we discover the stories behind the people behind the Twitter accounts. People that are interesting, opinionated, and surprising. I'm your host, Steve Malk, and today I'm speaking with someone who describes themselves as writer, walk master, mansplainer. May appear shiny in photos and sometimes life. Want more than 140 chars of me? Of course you do. See URL below. Humans of Twitter is their stories in their words in a little more than 140 characters. Please welcome today's edition to the Humans of Twitter list, Nick Earls. Hi, Steve. How are you? Nick, I am doing very, very good. Can you tell me, please, in social settings, how do you introduce yourself? <laughs> um, I'm... I'm not enormously social, yeah. so yeah, I've got a finite group of people. No, I but I find myself, you know, we all do find mm-hmm. ourselves in in unfamiliar situations with people we don't know. Yes. Um, very often for me, that's a work event, so mm-hmm. I'll be there in a work capacity, and and I'll be working and introduced anyway. Sure. Um, but I say, okay, I've got a, a six-year-old, near seven-year-old at school. So mm-hmm. there's a group of people, parents, that I would have reason to introduce myself to. So I simply just went with the name and said I was Patrick's dad. Yep. Uh, and that's it. But what happens not infrequently in that circumstance is people go, haven't I met you before? Yes. Have I? And there's this kind of vague mm. familiarity that, you know, if I was Hugh Jackman, it would not be vague. <laughs> uh, but uh, <laughs> But since I'm a writer of books who sort of, pops up in their mm. lives occasionally there's this imprecise thing and sometimes people go is your did i meet you at a party of your cousins or what and it's just got to yeah so and, and it's sort of some days i'll just go i don't think so and mm. some days i'll say i write books and yes. that's and usually the penny drops and that's and, where we end up yes the, the professionally social thing, and I don't mean that as, you know, you're off to like the social parties or those sorts of things, yeah. but, you know, I am a professional in a place where, you know, I'm going to have people will think they know me because they've read my books, mm. they've read my work, those sorts of things. That must be a little bit surreal at times. It took a lot of adjusting to back in the 90s when people started reading my books, when Zigzag Street came out in mm. 1996. None of us thought it was actually going to sell any copies. I mean, at that stage, I'd had I'd had a collection of short stories that came out in 1992 and sold 900 copies, most of them to my mother. Uh, so when when I published a novel that the general public actually bought, mm. the people without a stake in my well-being actually paid money for, that was quite a surprise. And and then so then people would start to recognise me mm. in public. And uh, and and I had to adjust to that being a kind of new version of normal. Yes. And so now um, some people might, some people might not, and all that's fine. Mm. And if they do, typically it's when I'm slowing down in coals to buy fruit and veg. Yes. Because, you know, you don't have to slow down to buy cereal because no. you know what you're there for. You pick the box up, toss it in, keep moving. But you have to gently test out the fruit and veg. I'm not saying squeeze the avocados till they bruise. (laughs) You've got to be careful. But you slow down there and check things out. Mm. So that's often when people will come over for for a chat, which is a nice thing. And it's 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 always a good thing. In fact, people only want to come up to you and, and say nice things about your work. Sometimes 
it's mildly awkward. I know that there have been times when I've spoken at schools, for example, yes. and then I've been, I remember once in the um, the Brunswick Street Mall in the Valley in Brisbane, uh, a girl who might have been, say, 14, ran over to me, put her arm around me, pulled a phone out uh, and, and took a, a selfie of the two of us right away. And, I, and various other adults were looking at me thinking, who is this middle-aged man? Is he some kind of trouble? And, and you just got to kind of let that moment take its course and get out of it as, as gracefully as possible because, you know, the 14-year-old's entitled to their photo. Sure. Uh, but um, uh, it is, yeah, you still got to remember that, that you're the adult and it might not be normal for everyone around who yeah. didn't expect that to happen. Yeah, well, I could imagine you know, you're sitting there having a coffee, yeah, and someone, oh, look, I just wanted to say thank you very much. I really enjoyed this or the yeah. way such and such, which is great. Or yeah. getting me to, uh, getting me to to autograph something that they've found. Uh, occasionally, I've autographed my own shopping list because uh, I've been near the end of the <laughs> yes. shop and they've wanted something, and they've had a pen and I've had my mm. bit of paper, and it's kind of nearly finished its useful life, and yeah. so what is about to become scrap paper is then taken away as some kind of low-grade treasure. Uh, someone's going home with a story to tell and it's my signed shopping list. This old woman gave me a book that has your name on it. Can you sign it? Please? Yes. <laughs> when it comes to Brisbane, it quite often is uh, almost an extra character mm. in some of the stories that you tell. What's your relationship with Brisbane? Well, I arrived here as an outsider. I wasn't born here. Mm. So... Um, I acquired Brisbane or it acquired me, one oh, or the other. you flew here, did you? I, I, I flew here. Yes, that's right. I didn't grow here. I grew here after flying here. Uh, so I knew somewhere else first, which meant that I then, I, I got to appreciate what Brisbane had to mm. offer uh, over the years. And I think it kind of, I mean, it was a really mixed thing. I, I left Northern Ireland as a near nine-year-old mm. when Northern Ireland was not a safe place to be in the mm. 70s. So Brisbane was was very safe, mm. but but not in a way that I was used to. Like there was no army on the streets and I thought yeah. that can't be safe. You know, <laughs> where's the army, please? <laughs> yeah. uh, I adjusted to that. I realized we didn't need an army on the streets and, um, and the place became home mm. and, um, and became a progressively better place to live I think over, yeah. over time and then in 2002 I was the face of Brisbane's marketing campaign mm. so I I had to and I can't, and that sort of said to me this is home now this is mm. where I'm from if the place is paying me money to front its marketing <laughs> yes. campaign uh even even if i was temporarily displaced by a ferret uh for the for the ferret about brisbane campaign yeah. i made a comeback the year later yes. um but uh it it not only feels like home but it was a place i didn't read about much when i was growing mm. up some fiction was set in brisbane mm. not a lot was written in brisbane some was but the brisbane i grew up in was a place that writers had tended to leave. Yeah. Uh, Thea Astley, David Maloof, Rodney Hall, Tom Shapcott, a whole range of writers had left. Mm. And uh, it's only more recently that it's become a place that writers have returned to and writers have stayed. So when I grew up, I didn't read the Brisbane I knew about in stories yes. because if David Maloof, when David Maloof wrote Jono, that was set decades before I arrived in Brisbane. Mm. So I didn't recognize that place. So my early writing, that book of short stories that no one but my mother bought, <laughs> uh, was not set here. 
and it didn't really find its feet. Mm. Uh, I didn't. I had underestimated how useful place is in stories. Yeah. Whether it's a place you know really well or a place you've been able to research really thoroughly because you know the world has changed now. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I mean, what I've got out at the moment is a series of five novellas, uh, most of which happen in other places, mm. some of which I've been to, but whether I've been there or not, I've spent days on end on Google Street View checking out exactly <laughs> what it looks like yeah. to get the details. Um, and I think it's great that we can do that now. But yeah. I think my early short stories were set in sort of generic cold climate cities. Mm. And I, my characters too easily got lost there. Mm. Then when I sat down in the mid-90s to write After January, which was set at the Sunshine Coast, a yeah. place I know well, and Zigzag Street, which is set in the inner suburbs of Brisbane, yeah. I suddenly realized what place offered you as a writer. I mean, it creates opportunities. Mm. If you think you've got a story to tell and you, you want a, a range of different natural things to come along to cue the story that you're mm. telling. And if you know the place where that you're setting the story or if you know details of that place, those details can be there to cue the story for you. So it's yeah. a tool as a writer. It becomes a character in the, in the work, uh, but it's also an asset as a writer using a place. Whether, whether it's a real place or an invented place, but if it's an invented place, you need to put a lot into the invention. So sure. for me, I'll tend to use a real place and the smallest cast I can and focus on connecting with the details and then selecting the details that will be right, not just for the place, but for the story and for the characters. Yeah. You write about, you know, the, the, the having a story set in a real place, something tangible that you can visit or be a part of. Um, like I just reflect on, um, you know, just some, some mental images of Brisbane, you know, sort of the end of October, that sort of late spring sun streaming through windows of an old Queenslander, that kind of thing and what it looks like versus thinking about the way George R. R. Martin, for example, talks about Westeros and, and King's Landing. Uh, and it's it's one thing to say, well, obviously George was thinking about these kinds of places when he writes that. But when you talk about, you know, a place that you've grown up in or a place that you love, like Brisbane or wherever it may be, you can just nail that moment where you're talking about it looks like this or the sun feels like this. Yeah, and I think that's a great thing for people who do know the place, mm. but a great thing in another way for people who don't. Yeah. Uh, because in if you do know the place, it's another connection with the work you're reading, and it's mm. an exciting thing to have that connection. If you don't know the place, it's a kind of place-making thing. Yeah. Uh, it adds value to the story. It, it, it shows you the world that that the characters are in and you're not getting the pictures on a screen mm. you're making them in your own brain yeah. so judicious use of those details i think can be very useful whether people know the place or they don't it works in different ways for them mm. but i think knowing the place whatever the origins of that place is a really valuable thing as a writer it's a it's it's there for you to use so yes. from my point of view it's worth the investment in either getting to know the place or thinking through the place and working out which of its details will allow you to reveal your story in the way you want to reveal it? Yeah. Nick, are you doing what Nick in year 11 thought he would be doing? <laughs> Sitting in your house here. At <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe not. Maybe not. Okay. All oh, right. Okay. Not that specific. Uh, 
I am doing a 21st century version mm. of what I dreamed I'd be doing then, but didn't really think I was going to get the chance to do. Because yes. I can remember when I was about that age, I saw a, a TV thing, a TV current affairs thing, an interview with Morris West, yes. major Australian writer of the time. And he said that really only about half a dozen Australians make a living out of writing fiction. I took it literally. I thought there were six spots. Uh, and I thought, there are six spots. I want one. Someone's yes. got to die for me to get one of those spots. <laughs> That's what I thought. I, you know, Tom Keneally still hasn't given up his, and he had one then. That's right. So, so you no, know, those spots are pretty hard for it. Um, it turns out there are more than six spots, oh, yeah. which is, yeah, a relief to all of us. Uh, so that's what I really wanted to do. But that was at a time when growing up in Brisbane, there was not much evidence of pathways that might lead you to be a writer. So I thought, I want to do that. I can't just finish school and declare myself to be a writer and yes. have the publishing industry and readers embrace that concept. <laughs> I might have to do something else first. And I ended up doing a medical degree mm. first and, and practicing full-time for a couple of years, then part-time for a while after that, thinking that the best it might ever get for me would be that I might be a half-time GP mm. and half-time writer. And and that would have been a perfectly good life. I mean, sure. yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a good job. And that's a combination that's worked for quite a few people from Chekhov on. Mm -hmm. um, but I then found myself in 1998 kind of taken by surprise. Mm -hmm. I was editing a section of a medical magazine at the time. I was the continuing medical education editor for Medical Observer, a GP's yes. magazine. And I, I was doing, and that job was then taking 16 to 20 hours a week, but I had to deliver my content on a fortnightly basis. And in early 1998, I had bachelor kisses out in Australia, zigzag street out in the UK, and it led to three months of touring and it became very hard to hold down yeah. this job. And everyone had been really supportive of me having this job before then thinking that, you know, that was a, was a really good idea to have this this well-paid part-time job and mm. keep my connection with medicine and all that. And so I tried to keep that up. And then I find myself going through page proofs on the plane on the way to England and phoning the changes through yes. from the hotel in London and thinking I should be living the dream, but I'm feeling hugely stressed here <laughs> trying to make all this work. So when I got back from the overseas bit of that and resumed the Australian touring, I said to both my agent and my publicist mm. who had very much been of the don't give up the day job school just a year before I said look I'm finding it really hard to fit this medical editing job in now mm. I might have to give it a break for a while and they both went yeah I don't know why you're still doing that <laughs> I thought you could have told me <laughs> thanks for the support team yeah, <laughs> yeah well done yeah gosh it's uh, that 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 in itself is a is a, a crazy journey I'm sure the 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 amount of study and thought and effort put into just casually a medical degree, you know, you could have become anything medical. That's fine. Um, to then look, you haven't thrown it away, but the, to then have the opportunity to follow your passion as a writer and, and to write novels and the like that you are, do you ever catch yourself reflecting on, gee, I wish I could see someone about some strep throat. <laughs> <laughs> not one of the moments of general practice that I miss <laughs> or yeah, looking into ears and mm. seeing what's, yeah. Uh, I mean, there were times when I felt very useful mm. and that was great. Um, but, um, 
but you know i have to say i love what i'm doing now and uh uh and the fact that i haven't missed the other job mm. when i haven't done it all century <laughs> is a sign that maybe i should be doing what i'm doing now yes. as long as people keep buying enough books that i get to keep doing it well yeah it's a hell of a thing to fall back on you know people talk about oh before you become an actor make sure you've got a career or something to lean on yeah, yes. I think my problem is that uh, that my chance of falling back on it probably ended late last century. <laughs> I mean, there's only so long you can go without practicing medicine. Mm. If I if I wanted to go back to medicine now, they'd probably say that'd be fine. Just go and do do the medical degree oh, again, and yes. uh, yeah, because it's been a bit long now. Yeah, you can't just pay your money to the society and wait, bag a, a, a you know just shingle out the front. You're not business. quite no, and. Uh, and I think that's fair enough, really. Yeah, unless you live in Byron and it's holistic. <laughs> yeah. That's fine. Wow, judgment, Mark. Well done. <laughs> yeah, I was thinking, glad you said that, not me. But <laughs> <laughs> Well, you're the doctor, Nick. Um, what one thing would you change about your life today? Okay, I would... I would change the publishing industry slightly mm. so that so that many more people were buying my books at the moment. Because <laughs> so what's happened is uh, late last cent- turn of the century, yes. we had a publishing industry that was, that was only print-based yeah. and I'm quite open to it not being just print-based now. I sure. think there are great opportunities in other media. Uh, but we had... A publishing industry in Australia that was that was doing pretty well and that had room for quite a lot of people in it. What we've seen since then is that people have more and more going on in their lives. Yes. Um, for example, Twitter and podcasts, and we are now on the on that bit of the Venn diagram <laughs> where those two things yes. intersect. When people should be reading my books instead, but they're not. They're here. They're listening to you and me talk. Go and buy a book. Oh, thank you. That's good. That's what that's what we wanted. So. Uh, we have a lot more going on in our lives. Mm. We have a lot more inputs. We have a lot more distractions. We have a lot more opportunities. The video game industry uh, went from being $140,000 a year yeah. in 1973, which was a bunch of US arcades with Pong in them, uh, to being $100 billion a year now. Mm. And that's only games you pay for. There's plenty of games you don't pay for. So those things, plus Netflix, plus Facebook, plus everything, plus yeah. YouTube, when Gangnam Style clocked up its billionth view on YouTube, yes. which was a long time ago now, yeah. it's now past two and a half. When it clocked oh, up one billion views on YouTube, I worked out that that was about 50 million hours of human activity had gone into watching one video on one platform. And I thought if if 20% of that had gone to reading, that's 10 million hours of reading that didn't happen. Mm. That's the equivalent of a million books worth of reading that didn't happen because of one video on YouTube. So a lot of people are reading less. Mm. Um, that has an impact on a writer. Yeah. Uh, the financial crisis came along in 2008, 2009, and suddenly people realized that fiction, that novels for adults were discretionary spending. They kept buying books for their kids. They stopped buying books for themselves. Yeah. And a lot of them haven't got back into that habit. That's what I would like to see change. And that's one of the reasons for writing novellas now. Mm. The main reason for writing the novellas I've been working on is that they were the story ideas that compelled me, that I just yeah. had to write. I thought, I really want to write these, even if the publishing industry doesn't want me turning up with a bunch of novellas, even if my publisher would find it much easier if I went, here's a novel, because that's what they know how to sell. Yeah. Um, but 
the more I thought about it, the more I thought maybe this is the time for this form because more and more of us are not reading full-length novels when we're not on holidays. We're stockpiling them next to the bedside in the fantasy that we'll then carry these 10 kilos of books with us on holiday and read them. And we might read a couple, but that's about it. And I'm in this category too. I mean, I got Netflix. I spend time online. I've got a seven-year-old. And so all those things mean I don't read novels. I don't read as many novels a year as I used to. And so what I thought was come up with stories that have the intensity of a novel and the depth of a novel Mm. more than a short story and something but something that takes two or three hours to read the length of a movie to read and then if you've got an evening you can read the whole thing uh if you're on a plane flight from brisbane to melbourne or something like that you can read the whole thing so i thought maybe the novella form fits better with our lives Mm. and also maybe it fits well with the new platforms that are on offer because a novella has only been challenging for publishers to publish on paper because to make a smallish paper book costs almost as much as it does to make a medium-sized paper Mm -hmm. book, which is why the 20th century wasn't a great time for 20,000-word books Uh, because publishers always thought, we're going to find these hard to sell. The thing is, once people read them, if you can actually get people to buy them, if you've done a good job, no one feels ripped off. They've yeah. paid paid the price of a Saturday night movie ticket for a two to three hour read that they get to keep, read again and share with other people. Yeah. Uh, and if it's a good read, it's a good read. The value is there. But it, if you don't know what you're going to be reading and you compare a small book with a bigger book for the same price, then, you know, then yeah. the, 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 it's, a, it's a tough hurdle to get past. But with e-books, that doesn't apply. They can be whatever size they need to be. They can be whatever price they need to be. Mm. With audiobooks, that doesn't have to apply either because they don't have size constraints. You're not binding up an audiobook. And now that audiobooks are downloads, and now that more and more people are listening to podcasts, yeah. and podcasts are significantly longer than they were when they started, yes. a novella-sized audiobook is just, all you've got to do is flip the switch to fiction, and that's where you are. Yeah. So I think it's there for the podcasting crowd as mm. an audio thing. It's there for... Anyone who commutes or does any travel or whatever across a range of platforms. So what I hope is it's a good time to be writing things this size. It's uh, it's such an interesting break in the industry, isn't it? That you know there was um, you know the heralding of uh, e-books and and those sorts of things as the freedom of publication. Anyone can can create an e-book and publish it, become a self-publisher, mm. and lots of people have. That's grouse. Yeah. Um, it's like anything in the digital economy. The, the The tough part is translating it from here's my thing to here's a value on my thing. Yes. And and I think you should pay for it, whether it's five cents, five bucks or whatever. Yeah. Uh, and having people connect with that on a number of layers and go, well, you know, yeah, I value what you do, Nick. I think that this is worth X amount. Whether you, if there's a... Uh, a GoFundMe, Kickstarter, yes. you know, Patreon scenario, or you just pay for some money and you get a thing, or it's subscription, but something. Um, why? Why do you think we haven't quite? Because we used to pay for subscription. My magazines would turn up every month. Yes, We'd pay money and that would happen, and we had a tangible thing, and off we went. But you suggest to people that you know, hey, if you pay me three bucks, five bucks a month, a new thing will arrive in your inbox, inbox or on your iPad, you know, every month. Oh, no, hang on, no way, man. That's right, because, and I think, I think there are a few factors at work there. One is that 
a lot of people have given things away mm. to grow their audience and there becomes people develop an expectation that things are free. Yeah. A lot of ebooks are free for at least a period of time. So then free becomes a price people expect to pay. And then suddenly 99 cents looks like a ripoff compared to free yeah. uh, instead of paying $30 for, for a book. Yeah. Uh, so I think, uh, I think I and a lot of other people who have given things away uh, create have have unfortunately helped create that mm. uh, that expectation. But also, there's a thing that says that uh, you know what you're buying is you know electrons or whatever. You're not. There's no paper. There's no printing. There's no binding. It doesn't have to drive around on a truck. Yeah. And there's this idea that those are the things that cost all the money. They mm. do cost some of the money. Yes. Uh, but what's happened to create that work is someone has given up possibly a year of their life in order to do it then it's been edited so someone else has come in and done that that's added value to it uh there's been a designer has come and laid it out uh and so there are a range of people who are involved in creating it and it's a created thing even if it's not an obvious physical thing and i think that's there's a kind of perception there that that if it's not a physical thing if the unit cost of each one is zero then we should have it for zero, whereas that might be the unit cost of each one, but some major human endeavor went into yeah. the creation of it in the first place. Um, it but still costs money to think, doesn't it? It does, and it, it takes time. It takes a lot of time to think and to write and to rewrite and to rewrite again, and and I think people deserve some kind of prospect of an income based on the time they've put in. And in the case of an ebook, it's maybe a few dollars. It may not even be that. So it's not, not as yeah. it's a, a large amount of money. Um, the challenge then is finding, is getting people to find your ebooks. Yeah. The Kindle store grows by a million titles a year. Once titles are in there, they don't go away. Yeah. So there are now four or five million titles in there. And it's the easiest place in the world to get lost in. I can remember Garrison Keeler saying maybe in 2012 that uh, uh, the future of publishing in America was, it was something like, uh, you know, 18 uh, million authors, uh, each of them with an average, with average sales of 11 copies, eight of them to family. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. uh, and that's, that's the danger. Mm. Uh, it's, it's an infinite marketplace. Yeah. You can't browse it in the same way. The Kindle store and its current size, if you turned it into a bookshop with one copy of each book spine out, it's about 300 kilometers of shelving. So you can't browse that in a normal way. And people who bought this also bought that is not the same thing because you might have bought it for your grandmother. Um, So what you, you what you rely on is having some kind of readership who will give your work a go and then... You rely on the modern version of word of mouth, which has always been the most powerful thing behind selling books or anything like books. Mm. Uh, we, while we might read reviews and uh, we might pay attention to interviews, the strongest persuader in going to a movie, uh, choosing a TV series, buying a book, is if you've got a, a, a friend with tastes like yours whose views you trust yeah. who goes... This is brilliant. You're going to love it. And uh, and that's what you need. That's what gives everything a chance. And in the case of things like the Amazon Kindle store, that also includes things like star ratings and reviews mm-hmm. and all that kind of thing. Uh, that also helps. 
but um, it's it's altogether too easy a place to go and vanish. Yeah, wow. I mean, you, you talk about the Kindle store in that context. Extrapolate that every industry in a digital situation is facing that. You know, if you're a, that's right, uh, a music music artist, it's even more bizarre than that because you've got a number of paid platforms yeah. that you can put your stuff out on, and then there's all the free ones that you can hopefully get. But how does anyone find it? Mm. How does anyone find your new thing on a Spotify or a? Wow, wow. <laughs> it from a creative point of view, I weep a little bit because I just think. It, it is exactly that. We have to now reconnect with the tribe that maybe we had disconnected with to to find the things that may challenge us or entertain us or, you know, awaken us, mm. you know, from an imagination point of view. Whereas before it could just be, well, I trust such and such in the newspaper. They say this to me. Yes. Or we were talking about it on the bus ride where you cop on a, a bus now to commute anywhere these days. And if you can find someone to talk to, because they're not there, but just because we all have become yes. listening to a podcast or an yes. audio book or a thing. Oh, there's a screen yeah. uh, 50 centimetres in front of my face. and uh, I'm looking for a Pokemon. And, yeah, yes. It seems to be very big at the moment. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and it's interesting looking at photos of commuters on buses and trains. And until not that long ago, they were reading books or newspapers mm. uh, or, or doing nothing. And now almost everyone is on a device and yeah. many of them with plugs in their ears as well. So they're very, it's a very insular, very insular thing. Yeah, I would have thought that quiet carriages on trains would be relatively easy to achieve now. Yeah, yes. Yeah. Maybe it's just me who doesn't commute. <laughs> I don't know. What's your favourite takeaway food choice? Well... I've been in regional New South Wales for the past week on holiday mm. and uh, there's a lot of hot chips there mm. and a lot of burgers. Yep. Um, there are some some places where you do get great food, I must say, <laughs> but um, it's, uh, it's nice to be back in Brisbane with a very good range of Asian takeaways. Mm. So... Um, uh, Thai, Vietnamese, a yep. range of Chinese things. Um, Sichuan I particularly like. Oh, so, yeah. you know... That's, that. yeah. mm. It's uh, it's interesting because uh, I have um, relatives who live in the country. My parents live in rural New South Wales, and they have their favourite Chinese restaurant that we go and visit. And gross generalisation warning: <laughs> Chinese restaurants in the country, yes, tend to be you could almost make them into a chain store. Yeah, you know the Chinese the the sun pack thing here and the you know happy dragon over there. Short of the owners. They're all serving the same stuff, which is fine, but it's dependable and it's the same, you know, you know what you're going to get with your sweet and sour pork. And you know there will be sweet and sour pork yeah, and, yeah. you know, chicken chow mein or whatever. Yeah, and it's golden circle, keeping them in business. Yeah, it's, um, uh, it's, it's the kind of Australian spin on a Cantonese mm. cuisine that comes from the mid-20th century, if not earlier than that. And uh, so I am glad now mm. that that there are places where you get much more than that. Yeah. You get a lot more variety oh, yeah. and more authenticity. I was very lucky to travel to China. Oh, gosh, it feels like forever ago now. And uh, we went to a Sichuan restaurant in China. And I said to my host, look, the pictures are great. That's about all I can see on this yep. menu. You order. And he, he ordered a, a marvellous range of dishes. And he said, how hot do you like it? And I said, look, not very hot, but surprise me. I... I I'll go anything once. And we got this amazing dish, which had uh, prawns uh, cooked 
hole, like in, in the shell, in what was a bath of bird's eye chilies. <laughs> yeah. It was yeah. phenomenal. They yeah. tasted amazing when you could get to them. Yes. But it was almost like a treasure hunt digging through yeah. chilies to find <laughs> these prawns. Wow. Yeah. So good. Taste, but Yes. <sighs> yes, I think the hottest meal I've had in my life was in China, and it was a beef and chili dish, with or possibly yeah. a chili and beef dish, in <laughs> fact. And the chilies were small, dried chilies and really fiery. But I thought, I'm going to take these on. Mm. Uh, and I did, and... That cleansed me, I can tell you. <laughs> that really moved through. It was a difficult couple of days. Um, so, yeah, I thought the top end was going to be bad. but um, When you uh, see them vibrating on the table or the plate before you touch them, is a good signal they're yes, in trouble. Yes. Uh, and I, I have also had uh, in a Sichuan restaurant mm. in Beijing uh, a Sichuan frog dish uh, yes. with with the the craziest amount of Sichuan pepper I've ever had in my life. So that, you know, not fiery hot, mm. but an unusual experience that I do like. I mean, I cook with Sichuan pepper now. Sure. Uh, but this was like whole sprigs of it in there. <laughs> like this, this was like, I could have got several months of cooking out of this Sichuan pepper. And so my whole mouth went numb and I really liked it, but I'm pretty sure the drool was running from my chin at the end of the meal. And it was a bit hard to maintain my credibility when I couldn't feel my face. I go, this is really good. And yeah. It is the weirdest feeling though, isn't it? When you feel the inside of your mouth, just lose all feeling. Yeah. Because I ate something and now... Yep, yep. And you're kind of chewing from memory and trying not to do what you did when you had major dental work as a kid and kind of ate the inside of your cheek before you got the feeling back. You're going, don't eat my cheek, don't eat my cheek. Mm. Just Is that frog or cheek? I don't know. (laughs) Just take the tooth out now. Yeah. What is your favorite place to travel to? Um, I went to... Look, it's hard to pick one. Unfortunately in life, we don't end up having to pick one. New York is a great city. Paris is a great city. Yeah. I really like them as cities. Uh, I went to Alaska mm. a couple of years ago. And my birthday present was a glacier hike on a glacier outside Juneau. That was outstanding. So I th- I really like going there. And yeah. so I'll actually be going back to Alaska. Uh, and this glacier, we, we did a cruise. Mm. I'm not necessarily a natural cruiser. Mm. Um, but um, so this was us and, you know, two and a half thousand Americans and 1,500 staff on this very large cruise ship going yeah. up the inside passage there. But it meant that, uh, that, you know, our son was nearly four at the time. Mm. It meant that he got to sleep in the same bed night after night, but then be in a different town every day. Sure. And so that worked out well and had a good look around Juno, used it in one of my novellas. That was always Mm. the plan. Uh, And so I got to do some research there. But then uh, one of the friends I was with and I got on a chopper and got flown up to the Mendenhall Glacier in the Juno ice field. Mm. and, uh, And we flew up. So we were in the chopper. It went up this little gully, and you could see just a little bit of glacier at the top. And I thought, okay, that, that looks kind of interesting. And then it hopped over the top of that, oh. and all you could see in front of you was glaciers. Wow. There's like 100 kilometers of, of ice field and craggy black peaks poking out of it. And we flew along at quite high speed in the chopper, but it was like <laughs> we were hardly moving at all because, like, nature was just so huge around yeah. us. And then way in the distance, there was this little speck that looked like half an orange golf ball poking out of the ice. Yes. 
And as we got closer and closer and closer, I eventually worked out it was a tent. And that was the guides waiting for us. So we landed there and put the crampons on. They showed us how to walk with the crampons and how to use the ice axes. And we just set off across the ice. And sometimes being able to stand either with a foot on either side of a little crevasse and looking way, way, way down into this deep, deep blue ice. And uh, at one point we came to an ice cliff that was... I don't know, maybe 40 meters high, maybe higher than that. Uh, and I thought, okay, we're going to turn around now. And that's when the guide turned to me and said, you want to climb that? And Great. so I thought, yeah, for sure I want to climb yeah. that. And actually turned out it was really easy because the crampons have spikes at the front as well. Um, so you can just kind of, like a spider, just go up the wall. In, yeah. yeah, yeah. And when I got near to the top of that, I, I turned around and I could see the glacier behind me mm. and I could see where the glacier's path had historically gone like all the way out to sea. Uh, and I knew that when, because I think um, one of the, yeah, George Vancouver, who had been with Captain Cook, had mm. gone there uh, in the late 18th century. And at that stage, the glacier had gone well out to sea. It's obviously yeah. gone back in. But I could, you could like see way into the distance and see ships there. And uh, oh, so good. Yeah, wow. I can't yeah. imagine, man. Yeah. And Alaska is really opening up to as a tourist destination for those kinds of reasons. Yeah. And, and cruising is going massive business. Yeah. Uh, I've got a bunch of friends that are cruising there now. I've got a friend that's just come back from that and a Canadian train trip. Oh, yeah. You can uh, kind of do that as a package, do the Rocky Mountaineer and yeah. things like that as well. I like Canada too. I've got, I've got quite a few friends in Canada. It's beautiful. You go to the right places. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. Canada's lovely. What are you going to achieve in the next 12 months? I am going to see through the publication of these novellas. Mm. We're kind of at the halfway point now. The third of the five is out. Then I have a a children's book coming out in November. Great. And then I will finish writing up my novella experiment as a PhD. Excellent. So I've written them for that. It's been a great process. I've learned a lot about novellas in the early part of the PhD. So mm. I gave me a lot more stuff to bring to the writing of them. So mm. I think I've written the best novellas I could write uh, because I've actually done some study in the area now. But also yes. I wanted to try this model where we release them as individual small paper books, yep. e-books and audio books simultaneously and uh, and see how people go with that. So Great. it's an experiment in publishing as much as anything else. So that is pretty all-consuming at the moment because with it being a different thing, I mean, the the early responses from reviewers to the novellas has been really good, which mm-hmm. is great. Um, that and the fact that we're trying a different model has got a lot of attention from writers' festivals. So sure. it's meant that this has been the only time in my career when I've had to tell my publicist to stop booking me into writers' festivals. <laughs> so, because once he got up to 12 or 13, I just said, look, I've got to spend some time at home. This is great. Thanks for the support. Because he was then going, okay, we've got this, we've got this, we've got this. And now I'm going to try these various regional ones, having locked in loads of capital cities and a number mm. of regional ones. Uh, and and then he was starting to look internationally and he you know, got... And he was saying, now I'm going to talk to uh, Jaipur and Dhaka. Having got, look, yeah. that's great, <laughs> yes. but I do have a family at home who require me to be there sometimes. <laughs> so <laughs> so we might have to scale this back slightly and just limit it to the 13 you've already chosen. <laughs> and then you have to write the PhD. 
Yeah. Fortunately, the novellas get to be part of it. Mm. So I'm technically ahead at the moment, <laughs> having written them. Uh, but with all these writers' festivals, that's how to get behind fast. Yes. Um, so I've uh, and I've done, I've I've done the study on novella craft. Now yeah. what I have to do is write about the experiment that I'm doing now. So I'm most of the way there. And, and once it's accepted, you can be Dr. Dr. Nick. Uh, that's, that, of course, is the, is the dream. That's what I want. I, wa- <laughs> I, I, I want to I have a name that sounds like a stutter. <laughs> yeah, well, there, there's been worse. Nick, um, thank you so much for the chance to speak with you today. Please know the things that you've said are very special and you're highly valued. Thank you so much. Thanks, Steve. It's great to great to get the chance to talk to you. Obviously, you are a tweeting person. At yes, times. I am. Uh, are there other social accounts you would want people to know about? Uh, I'm also on Facebook and I have a blog. I have a WordPress blog, and the suite of those three things mm. kind of does it for me. And uh, and I get a lot out of those three things in different ways. Yep. Uh, you know, Twitter. I like to I like to be there because occasionally, despite being a novella writer and a novelist, I can say something in 140 characters or fewer. So One of 17. Yes. <laughs> I try not to do that. <laughs> Tempting though it is. Because, you know, you use up a few characters mm. doing that. Oh, yeah. So, uh, yeah. So, no, it's... Uh, uh, since my workplace normally has a population of one, yes. uh, it's very nice that through social media, I get to connect immediately with a whole lot of other people independent of geography mm. it's a really it's a it's a good part of life this has been humans of twitter and i can confirm that at nick earls is indeed human <laughs>